You are now listening to the April 8th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Fruit of Spirit sermon and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with the Fruit of Spirit. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministry listeners. This is Terry Park with Fruit of the Spirit. In this new program, we will share the fruit of the Holy Spirit as shown in the book of Galatians. Last week, we clarified how there is one fruit of the Holy Spirit, yet this fruit has nine different characteristics. Moving forward, we will consider each characteristic. Today, we will share the first characteristic, love. Because love is an essential characteristic, we will consider in two parts over two weeks. We should note that there are a few different types of love as described in the Bible. There is God's love for us, there is our love for God, and there is our love for our neighbors. Among these, love and the fruit of the Holy Spirit described in Galatians chapter 5 is about our love for our neighbors in Christ. During the time when Jesus lived, a lot of people had incorrect understanding about the laws from the Old Testament. This incorrect understanding brought forth two misguided outcomes. First, they applied the laws based on their standards and not based on God's standard. Second, they added more laws themselves to the laws God had given them. Jesus addressed these misunderstandings in the Sermon on the Mount as appears in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. In his sermon, Jesus expanded the meaning of the laws and taught true spirit of the laws. In particular, Jesus taught them the deeper and wider meaning of the law that pertains to murdering someone as appears in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21-24. This law states, you shall not commit murder. At the same time, most people in general were not contemplating or murdering someone, so they thought this law had little to do with them. They simply thought they would not be subject to judgment because they were not going to murder anyone. However, Jesus shattered this misguided perception. He pointed out that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be subject to judgment before the court, and whoever says, you good for nothing to a brother shall be guilty before the high court. Whoever says, you fool to a brother shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. In essence, Jesus teaches us that what we say out of hatred and heated moments can equate to murdering our brothers and sisters. Isn't that a scary thought? After explaining the true meaning of this law about committing murder, Jesus begins in verse 23 with therefore. From that point on, he teaches us how to love brothers and sisters and how to worship God. As we will discover, there is a profound relationship between the two, loving others and worshiping God. Worshiping God the Creator is important. It is our responsibility and duty. It is also a privilege for us as God's creation. But before we can exercise this privilege, we need to think about what God might think about our worship, whether He will receive our worship. For that, we must watch over our hearts and set our relationships with brothers and sisters straight. Then we may give worship to God. Jesus is telling us that loving others is that important. Yet in our daily lives, we often get at our brothers and sisters with emotional outbursts. We sometimes say things and act out of our displeasure by looking down upon them. We would intentionally show hatred and anger. Unfortunately, in many instances, those brothers and sisters are usually those that are close to us. That is why we must watch over ourselves in humbleness and humility through what Jesus is teaching us today. We often take for granted our family members whom God gave us to love. We do not apologize even after wrongdoings, and we do not repent our wrongdoings to the Lord. Yet, we still try to do our best to follow God's word and pray and do our best to worship and serve our church. Even I feel guilty about this. How about you? If your spouse or your children do not believe in Jesus and see you acting that way, how would they think about you and Jesus you worship? 
First John chapter three verse fifteen says this: Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is a serious declaration that should shake us to our core. Jesus loved us with complete love, even to the death on the cross. If we confess that we have received such love, we cannot live with hatred, because hatred is complete opposite of love. It is only right that we share that love. We should spread that love in thanksgiving. We should put into action the love Jesus showed us on the cross in our daily lives. This concludes this week's message and fruit of the spirit. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Cavalry Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Athens, a day of decision. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Okay, so we're studying the, the book of, anybody remember? Acts, you remember, okay. So we left in chapter 17. So. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 17. I know a lot of you are using a loaner Bible. I'm going to make it easy. It's page 926, because you might not be familiar where things are in the Bible. I'm glad that we can direct you. So page 926, Acts 17, verse 15. Paul had been run out of Berea, and so he was going like a three-day trip down to Athens, sailing down to Athens, And he was sent on his way, verse 15 says, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, he's coming from Berea, and after receiving command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So the plan was for Paul, you can see the map there, see Berea up at the top, right under the Thessalonica, see Berea, that's where he came. And then they went down and about a three day on the ship to go down to Athens. Can you see Athens? Yeah, Tiny print. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You get the idea. See the blue? That's water. <laughs> And he went down. He just went down. Okay, that's cool. That's enough. Paul leaves, and the plan was that Silas and Timothy would meet him in Athens, and they kind of ministry together, because Athens, as we're going to see in a minute, was a really, maybe an intimidating city for a lot of people that might come with a new idea 
Look at, at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. It was, it was pouring over with idols. Now, when Paul would first go into the city, coming from the sea, going into the port, he would have seen, first of all, this huge, colossal idol of Poseidon. And then he would have seen the idols of Athena and Mercury and um, Zeus and, and others, just everything you would see. And then temples, massive temples everywhere. You'll go in, and they were beautiful. And there were hundreds of them. There were shrines every place. Couldn't that walk down a road without seeing a shrine, a shrine, a shrine, a temple, a shrine, a temple to all these various gods. In fact, it was said that there were more gods living in Athens than people. All right? It was that kind of... And so Paul's walking through town, and he's, he's seeing all of, of this idolatry, and he's seeing all of this, and there's one altar that caught his eye. And I'll tell you about that in a sec. But he's provoked. The city was full of idols. So he followed his general evangelistic plan. You could almost, you could say it. You know what he does first when he comes to a city. What does he do first when he comes to a city? Where does he go? Yes, he goes. So, verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he went to the synagogue. So as he's there, uh, he's speaking to people in synagogues. Of course, the Jews are already uh, they know the word of God. They're kind of easy to share uh, the message of Jesus and Messiah with. But now you've got these pagan Greeks. I mean, they have got a philosophies, philosophies that just completely are contrary to anything that would have ever been experienced before this in Paul's missions. So it says in verse 18, he was discussing with some, it says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, let me just explain. The Epicurean philosophy was that the body was made for pleasure, and whatever you could do in this life that would bring you pleasure, you ought to do. Eating, drinking, sex, fun, whatever you could do. You should do it because that's what the body's created for. Maybe that's it. You know, you better do it now because you're not going to get another chance. That was the Epicurean pleasure. Me eat, uh, drink, and be merry, you know, basically. The Stoic philosophy was like polar opposite. The Stoics were all about duty. The body was considered evil. It would be hard on yourself, hard on your body. Wake up, cold shower every morning. Run the race. The body really didn't mean anything. And so, I mean, polar opposites, right? So you can imagine talking with both at the same time. Paul's like, okay, how am I going to handle this in sharing the gospel? Plus, the Stoics were pantheists. Now, don't let the word... A pantheist was somebody who believes that God is in everything. God is in everything. You think... Well, that's an idea. No, pause. No, it's not. God is not in this pulpit. God is not in a rock. God is not in a tree. God is not in everything. God, what? Created everything, so he's over everything. But the pantheists believe that God is in everything. So Paul's going to have a challenge there. So he's got the Epicureans over here, pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. He's got the Stoics. You know, it's got to be hard on yourself. All that, that's what duty is all it's about. And God is in everything. So their idea of God is that he's not a God in heaven. He's a God that's here on earth in everything you look at. Look at verse 18 now. Some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? I looked up, what does babbler mean? Okay, it actually means a seed picker. And yeah, you see, you know how a crow will pick seeds off the ground? What is a seed picker? This, oh, I don't know, this loafer. 
This person who'd sponged off of other people. I mean, they really derided Paul as they were hearing him teach his message. They, the, they just, some of them were just totally. And that was in the marketplace. At, and so Paul was taken by others to go up to the Areopagus. That's this high mountain above the city of Athens. And there were all the temples. You've heard of the Parthenon. It's up there on top. So they take him up there. It's a little more quiet. And they could have their discussions there together. What does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Why? He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19. So strange, let me just say, that was kind of a strange take on the gods. Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 20. For we bring... For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. In other words, how did you come up with this? Tell us about this. Verse 22. So Paul is going to bring a, this is a bridge here. Think of this as a, how am I going to do this? This is one of those times when you're shooting up a prayer. God, give me wisdom. I need to know what to do. And boy, does God give Paul the wisdom. This is fantastic. You want to hear it? Okay, this is what he does. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Arab Opigas, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Duh, right? You think? I mean... Paul is saying something like, uh, you take your religion very seriously here, don't you? Or I've never seen so much religion as I've seen in this place. He's building a bridge. He's saying, "I, I was walking along. Now, let's go on. As I passed along, verse 23, I observed the object of your worship. Like I told you guys, the cliche was there's more altars and temples in this town than there are people. So Paul had done quite a bit of looking around. He says, and I found an altar with this inscription. Read with me. To the unknown God. To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. Here's the story. Here's the story behind the unknown God, that altar. 500 years before, there is a terrible plague pestilence that came upon Athens. People were dying. Nobody knew which God they had offended. They were hoping that somehow if they made a sacrifice to this God, they could appease him and the plague would be lifted. So one shepherd came up with an idea. He said, you know what I'm going to do is I'm I'm just going to let my flock out and wherever my flock sits down and rests, that will be the God that we need to appease and offer sacrifice to. So the herd goes, the flock goes all through the city, doesn't rest, doesn't rest until it goes out and it sits down. And there's nothing out there. So this was a God nobody knew. He sacrificed to that God, to the unknown God. So they raised an altar to this God, but nobody really knew what this God was about or what he was like. And Paul brilliantly is going to take this whole idea. This is a God you don't know anything about. So let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about this God. Who's got their attention for sure. You want to know about this unknown God? I know who he is. I know how he thinks. So let me tell you about him so that you can at least worship him intelligently. No, like I'm telling you, there must have been a lot more that he was teaching in this because they are convicted. I am sure, I am absolutely sure that he shared about the the suffering and death of Jesus Christ and why he died. He died for our sins. He died for all the wrong things that we have done, for the guilt you may be experiencing. He died for all of that. I'm sure this was part of the conversation. But that was the burr in the saddle for some of them was the resurrection. Now, Paul gets really bold in verse 30. He says, look, the time of ignorance 
God is overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The message paraphrase says, God overlooks it as long as you don't know any better, but that time has passed. The unknown is now known, and he's calling you to radical life change. Look, you didn't know this. Okay, maybe God overlooked this. You know it now. What are you going to do with the truth? And you know, gang, wherever you're listening, whatever, it's what you do with truth that's most important. Talk about, what about the people that's never heard about God? What what about the people who know the truth and aren't doing anything about it? That's a big point too, isn't it? The other is a topic, can be discussed. What are you doing about truth that you hear week by week? What are you doing? Maybe do you need to repent and say, you know what, I need to turn around because I'm not following the truth I know. I know my life should be different. I know the truth. And God's saying, look, I'm not going to overlook it. You need to repent. And so he's looking like, you guys are unsaved, and now you're going to have to make a decision. Verse 31, you better repent because, why? Because, read with me, I don't care your translation, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by who? A man whom he's appointed, go ahead, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others say, we'll hear you later. So he tells them, look, you better repent because judgment day is coming, and God has appointed a man who will judge you. Who might that man be? The one that God raised from the dead, yes. So obviously he had talked to them about Jesus. I don't know if you realize that Jesus is going to judge the world. I'd like for us to hold your place here, okay? Hold your place here. But let's go to the Gospel of John, which would be like for you guys, 890. John chapter 5, verse 26. And it's okay if you're using these numbers. I'm giving you page numbers. I want you in the word, you know, you're going to grow to where, oh yeah, I know where this is, I know where that is. That's not important right now. It's just important that we get in the word. Amen, everybody? It's just important that we get in the book one way or another. So John 5, verse 26. For the Father, we're going to read here, we're going to read verse 27, so get ready to read good and loud, okay? I'm going to read 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. Let's go. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So Paul says he has appointed a man to execute judgment, exactly Jesus' words. These are Jesus' words. And he's given him, Jesus is saying, he's given me authority to execute judgment because I'm the son of man. Verses 28 and 29, don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay, let's go back to Acts 17. So Jesus will be the judge. Paul is saying you better repent and turn from your idolatry and your sinful lifestyles. You better come to the one God who's raised from the dead. People then responded to this message three ways. And the way they respond is the way people respond today. They respond is the way that you have responded. Every single person here will or will have already responded to this message of Jesus coming into the world to save your sins and promising you a new life and forgiveness and your guilt lifted, and a new start, and a resurrection. You've either made a decision, like one of these three, or you're going to have to make a decision like one of these three. Okay, what are the decisions? Look at the three decisions I see. The three responses to Paul's message. Now, when they, verse 32 Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some what? Mocked. They dismissed it. They mocked. But some, so Paul went out from their midst. I'm going to waste my time with you. 
But others said, we will what? We'll hear you again about this. They delayed. Some dismissed it right out. Some delayed. But verse 34, some men joined him and what? Believe. They decided. They decided. So I see that there are three responses here. Either you dismiss the message of Christ and the gospel and what he offers to you, you dismiss it completely, or you say later, you delay, we'll talk about this in another time, or you decide. Do you see that? Those are the three options right there. Dismissing the message that you hear, it will lead to your eternal death and destruction. Another way, though, going back to Acts, go back to our passage, another way that people responded, in verse 32, the end there, it says, we'll hear you again about this. Another way people responded to the message of Jesus' resurrection is they delay. They procrastinate. Later. Let's do this again sometime. Yeah, we'll get together. Yeah, you talk to me or you text me, I'll text you. And it never happens, right? Later, later. To them, the death and resurrection of Jesus was interesting, but they put off doing anything about it. They felt like they should respond, but they decided, oh, it's, it's not convenient right now. You know, I, lunch is coming. I get out of here. It's just not convenient. And this is a reckless attitude of millions of people today. They live by the motto, Do today what you could put off until tomorrow, right? But if you put off making a decision for Christ for a more convenient time, you do so at a great risk because you don't know if you're going to have another time. I don't know if you knew this. I was surprised. This is what I read. Did you know the history records that the telegraph operator of the ship California tried repeatedly to warn the crew of the Titanic? of dangerous icebergs in the sea, in their path. But the telegraph operator on the Titanic got angry and wouldn't receive the warning. Finally, he indignantly replied, Stop interfering, I'm busy. It was only a little while later that the side of the Titanic was ripped open by one of the icebergs. This tragic disaster could have been avoided had the warnings been heeded. Later, later, and the ship sinks. That's one of the worst disasters ever. Has God sent you warnings time and time again? Has he sent you and you know, hey, I know this is God. I know he got me out of this. I know God saved me. Whoa, that was a close call. Has God sent you warnings? And you're like, later, God, later, God. I know how to deal with you, but later, The Bible warns about delaying a decision for Christ because we can't count on having another opportunity. The Bible says, don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring forth. The Bible says, how do you know what will happen tomorrow? For your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. The devil's strategy, I'm going to tell you, is to always get people to wait, to put off making a decision for Jesus. Oh, later. You know, this is convenient. It's a tragic mistake because tomorrow may never come. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm not guaranteed tonight. I'm not guaranteed this afternoon. I'm not guaranteed the next minute, you guys. And, and that's not hyperbole. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, play with your emotions here. I, this is reality. I've shaken people's hands, given them a hug at the door, and they die, and I never see them again. I didn't know it was the last hug I'd have the next week they're not here, or I hear about it. I love on this person, and I find out they're in a a vehicle accident, and it's like, what? What? And it happens to people that I, to some people that I know aren't saved, and I'm thinking, oh, it's too late. But I know they heard the word. I know they listened. I know they watched. And yet, they kept delaying. They kept putting it off. Do you know, three times, three times the Bible says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Why would God say that three times? Because it's an issue with people. And the more you delay, the more you put him off, the harder your heart will get. Pretty soon, you won't feel that tug anymore. And God's just said, okay, have it your way. Today, here's voice, don't harden your heart. But the Bible says, listen, today is the day of salvation. You know that? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to do something about this. So some people, you know, they totally dismissed what Paul had to say. Others delayed in their response to it. But others were told some believed. They decided. They made a decision for Christ. They didn't sneer. Maybe somebody, some of you were sneerers. You were critics before Christ. You were the critics of believers, the critics of the church, those people, that church, those buildings, whatever. Maybe that was you. Here you are, singing, praising, worshiping, supporting financially, giving. Whoa, what happened to you? Jesus changed your life. So yes, those who sneer can change for sure. But you know, if you're a sneerer, if you've mocked, okay, you can still decide because you've heard that God is just being patient with you because he doesn't want you to perish. So the reason that God hasn't done the things you think God should is because God's just saying, you know, I want to get through to you. Because if you die, you're going to go to hell. Some of us have heard, and you've heard it for years. You've heard the good news, you've heard the gospel, and you've delayed. Or some of you have been coming for a while, or listening, watching for a while, and you've put it off because, you know what, now it's time to make that decision. Today is the day of salvation. The day if you hear his voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit pulling you. It's almost a feeling, feeling like you're being drawn to God. It's real. It's real. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Because today is the day of salvation for you. What do I have to do to be saved? Well, the Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not hard. The Bible wants you to repent. Turn from where you're going. And that's what you want to do. You want to do about face. And to confess your sins to God. And the Bible says he'll forgive you. And he'll give you a brand new start. I've been praying for you. This is what I want to give you an opportunity to do. I just want to say, no one's here or watching or listening by coincidence. That doesn't happen. This is a divine appointment God has made for you. Whether you'll have another divine appointment, who knows? But I know this appointment today is a day of salvation if you will decide and stop delaying or stop dismissing, all right? So this is the time. This is the day. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You've been brought here by God, by his Holy Spirit. Heard the wonderful news of Jesus. He'll take away that load of guilt you've been bearing. Ah, loneliness you experience. You'll have his presence in your life. He'll give you his peace. You need it. And it simply comes when we call in his name. And that simply means praying. And I want to pray with you. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. I want to help you in a prayer, calling on the name of the Lord. How do you do it? You know, there's no recipe. What I'm praying is not the only way, but I just want to help you along here. Because I know Jesus is drawing you. This is for real. Now listen, I'm going to pray a prayer. I want you to pray it with me. You don't have to pray it out loud, all right? Just between you, me, and God. But you pray it with all your heart. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving me and for sending Jesus to die for all the wrong things I have done. I am sorry for these things. I'm sorry for my sins. Please forgive me. I believe that Jesus died for me. 
I believe that he rose from the dead for me. I believe that you will give me a new start, a new life, a new beginning. Right now, I want to give my life to Jesus. And I accept him as the one who saves me and as my Lord. Keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. You prayed the prayer. You know you meant business with God. God does too. You don't have to prove anything now. God knows it. The Bible says to those who have uh, called upon his name, he makes them children of God. You have a right to be called a child of God now. You're part of God's family. Now, the Bible also says that it's important for us to not keep our decision secret, but to let other people know. The Bible, Jesus says, if you'll acknowledge me before people, I'll acknowledge you before my Father who is in heaven. If you deny me before people, then I'll deny you before my Father. In other words, Jesus said, look, if this is for real for you, you're not ashamed of him. Look, he wasn't ashamed of you. He died naked on a cross for you. He wasn't ashamed to do that. Now he's saying, uh, would you simply let people know what I've done for you? You have a fresh start. You have a new beginning. You are a child of God. People around you are praying, probably more than you've ever had praying for you before in your whole life. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to acknowledge what Jesus has done in your life. I'm not going to have you walk forward. I'm not going to have you to stand up. This is all I want you to do is I want you to raise your hand good and high. You made that decision for Jesus. Just raise your hand good and high. You made that decision for Jesus. Keep your hands up good and high. Somebody hands you something, don't be surprised. They're just going to give you a, a little gift, a little book. Don't, don't worry, just take it. But then would you keep your hand up high for me? Keep your hand up high. You guys pray for these folks. Keep your hand up high, please. Lord, as our hands are held up high, you said that when we believe in you, you will take us by the hand. Can you imagine that? God taking you by the hand. And God says he'll never let go of you. Can you imagine that? God's got your hand now, and he will never let go of you. You got that? Put your hand down. Lord, I ask that you'll bless these men and women who have made the best decision of their entire lives. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Wow. So happy for you. There's nothing better. You made the best decision of your whole life. Happy birthday. This is your new birth. The Bible says you've been born again, so this is your new birthday. Okay, so remember. Christ Jesus lives today. He lives, he lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever man may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. Just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within.
Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart, my heart. Rejoice, rejoice, O Christian, lift up your voice and sing. Eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ the King, the hope of all who seek Him, the help of all who find. None other is so loving, so good and kind. He lives, he lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. You ask me how I know he lives. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602 602- 866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. We live in a culture that seems to think that things are just getting better and better as technology increases and humanity grows wiser. And within this culture, there's basically the belief that we are basically good. That's what the culture believes. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and if you're not disobedient to his word, you know that we are not good within ourselves. That there's nothing good within ourselves, but that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are made righteous And we are then enabled to trust and abide in Him, and His goodness is manifest in us. Now, if you've studied history, there was a great optimism in the early 20th century concerning human ability. Worldly speaking, before World War I, yet we had the intense carnage of that First World War, and it burst the bubble for a time. And yet we see as the last century advanced, we saw more and more wickedness, more and more carnage. And it outpaced any other century we have ever had concerning wickedness, evil, and death. Whether it's Hitler or Stalin or Mao or Pol Pot, the last century was the bloodiest ever the earth has ever seen. Things are not getting better. We see wickedness even around our own culture increasing. We see the wickedness every day in and out we have 24 7 news reports of all the evil that is going on all the time we see it all evil all the time it's really sad and yet we wonder what is god doing about it what is god doing about the wickedness and evil in this world well we're going to see that scripture reveals that god is patient unwilling for any to perish but the day of the lord will come 
Christ will come and judge sinners. And when he comes and judges sinners, if you are not in Christ, you are going to be eternally ruined in hell. The reality is God is a gracious God, but the day will come. Now we've been going through the book of Second Peter, and we've seen that there are false teachers that want to divert the church, want to have us thinking about other things than what God has declared in his word, to get focused on ourselves and our own lives, all the issues that have to do with us or other people, rather than focusing on Christ and the eternal things. We're going to see that false teachers want us to set our minds really on the things below rather than the things above. Claiming to bring forth God's word as though they are fountains pouring forth his truth, yet nothing is there. Ultimately pointing you to yourself and your own emotions and desires and focus. So with that in mind, how are we believers to avoid these false teachers? And how are we to live in light of the coming of Jesus Christ again in glory? Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're rapidly coming to a conclusion in this book, and so be praying about the next book we go through. Another Sunday or two, and we'll be done with this, Lord willing. Tremendous, wonderful portion. The context, as we've seen so far, is Peter is writing believers, those who have the same faith as the apostles. And if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have the same faith as the apostles did. Faith in Jesus Christ that brought about the forgiveness of sins. And in chapter 1, we see the theme of the book, really, and then throughout, that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that God has given believers everything pertaining to that, everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. For by His precious and magnificent promises, He's given us His Word, we are able to escape the corruption of the world that is by lust. The tremendous reality that God has given us what we need for our relationship with Jesus as we transition as temporary residents on this earth. And we saw that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that there should be things happening in your life. You should be trusting the Lord and walking in Him, and His Word should be working out in your life. And Peter gave the qualities of those who are neither useless or unfruitful You see, we can be useless and unfruitful in our relationship with Jesus. And there are a lot of believers that are that way. But if, as we saw in chapter 1, we are growing in moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, if these things are ours, we possess them because we're trusting in Christ. And they are increasing. We are neither useless or unfruitful in that relationship with Jesus Christ. And then towards the end of the chapter, after Peter reminds them and says it's right to remind them of these things, He gives an example of an experience that he had on the mountain. But we have the prophetic word made more sure. We have the written word of God, which we do well to pay heed to. He makes it clear that it's the written word of God. It didn't come from man. That no prophecy of scripture is of one's own interpretation, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. And then moving from chapter 1, everything we need that we do well to heed. He moves into the threats to our relationship with Jesus. That's what chapters 2 and 3 are about. The threats to our relationship with Jesus. And we saw in chapter 2 that bad guys will come. They will come among you, just as they did back in the Old Testament among the people. They're going to come, and they're going to use words, and they're going to mold and fashion. They're going to twist things. They're going to deceive. They're going to lure. They're going to do all these things. You can read all that ugly stuff in chapter 2 which shows where their hearts are at, wicked, greedy hearts, yet pretending to follow the Lord. Wicked men and women who are apostates, who knew the truth concerning salvation in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but turned away from it internally to their own wicked lusts and greed and are now using the truths of God for their benefit to entrap believers, to derail them on their walks. Chapter 2 reveals what's going on in their hearts, but also reveals how we can spot them. I've mentioned it earlier, but they are springs without water, these bad guys. They pretend as though you're going to be absolutely fulfilled, get the word of God, but when it's all said and done, there's no water. There's no water. They mold their words, and then as we see in chapter 3, they mock the word of God. And as we've moved into chapter 3, we have really a real-time example and their time of what these guys look like. 
So with that in mind, let's turn our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want to read up through our passage from what we saw last week and then read a little bit past it so we can gain the whole context. Because again, chapter 3 is one whole unit together. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know, or literally knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. These are the same guys you see in chapter 2, by the way. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Then our passage. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at one time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And that's as far as we're going to get today, but it really does continue and let me continue. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Tremendous passage. And this passage is very convicting to me as I was studying it that we can get so sidetracked into the issues of this life, the people, situations, whatever it might be, and our eyes be pulled off of the reality of what God has said is going to happen. Now again, like I shared, chapter 2 and then chapter 3 is really one big unit. So we're going to be basically artificially stopping today and looking at verses 5 through 10. So with that in mind, as temporary residents on this earth, those in which this world is not our home, in which we're being tempted to see it that way through bad guys, wanting to get you focused on this life rather than what the Lord has revealed in eternity and in heaven. How are we to avoid these bad guys? And how are we to stay focused on the reality of our Lord and Savior who will come again? Well, we saw last week, and I just want to briefly review in verses 1 to 4, that we need to remember God's word. We need to remember what he spoke through the apostles and through the prophets. We need to remember what he spoke concerning what would come and what would happen. But we saw again, verse 1, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I'm stirring you up, your mind, that you would remember something that you would remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Remember the word of God, what God said through his prophets, what God said through his apostles, what the Lord and Savior said through it. And we were wondering, well, what is it that he said? What was the word that he brought forth? Well, certainly it could be anything from the Old Testament or what was brought forth by the apostles. But I think more specifically in the context, it's relating to the warnings concerning those who would come in and pull your hearts and minds away from the Lord. Look at verse 3. Knowing, or literally, the, the, the word isn't know, but literally knowing. It doesn't stand on its own. We saw that last week. It's a participle. Knowing something. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, 
following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Remember what God warned you about through his prophets and apostles because it's going to come. You know they're going to come. Mockers will come in the last days. And they're going to mock the truth of God. And here a very specific truth that is extremely important. They're going to mock and they're going to disregard. You see, he says here they'll come in the last days. We know we are in the last days right now. We know that there's nothing left prophetically to happen on God's clock except for God to take his church away and then bring forth the tribulation and the day of the Lord as we see in Scripture. As Peter would say in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand or has come about. We are in the last days. But why hasn't Jesus come? Well, the mockers are mocking, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Everything stays the same. By the way, bad guys, false teachers, those who are not of the Lord, will point you to what you can observe, what you feel, rather than what God says. Look around, it's all the same, it hasn't changed. But they miss something, as we're going to see in a minute. They miss the truth of God, that by God's word he brought about creation, that by God's word he brought about the flood judgment, and that by God's word Christ will come, because he's faithful. So they're mocking the Word of God. They're mocking God. And we see what they're saying. Where is the promise of His coming? Just like the Old Testament false prophets. Peace and safety. Everything is fine. God is not upset with you, Israel. Well, God was upset. He was telling them to repent through His prophets. They weren't listening. They weren't listening. There are those who ultimately are saying this to say, basically, there's no judgment. There's no coming judgment. We see this infiltrating the church where evil men and women turn vulnerable or or lure vulnerable, unstable souls who are tossed to and fro to focus on the things of this life rather than eternal realities. And we are tempted to do that too. There are issues that happen in our lives. We get focused on those things rather than the truth of God that is revealed in the Word of God. So then we saw last week, first of all, we must remember God's word concerning the coming danger. Watching out for those in the church who will divert your focus on this life by mocking, lessening, omitting, or twisting the word of God concerning the coming and thus destruction of this physical universe and God's judgment on sinners. The ultimate goal to get you to ignore the reality of what God is going to do. Don't fall for the lies of the false teachers that try to divert you to focus on your issues this life, to live your life this way, whatever it might be. Purpose-driven, whatever it might be, to focus you on this life and to say it's all about Jesus, but really it isn't. It's about you. So how are believers to live in light of the return of Christ? How can we avoid this spiritual danger? First of all, we need to be reminded from the Word of God. And then now let's take a look at our passage Once we're reminded, we mustn't forget the truth of God. We must not forget it. You see, forgetting is a bad thing. Some of you know I used to be a corporate pilot. I'm a pilot now. If there are things that you forget, you die. Some things are very important. And we mustn't forget some things, spiritually speaking. Look at our passage, verse 5. And actually, I want to show you before. I want to show you some of the structure of what we're seeing here. So again, look at verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. And then look at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. It's kind of a little structure here. When they say these false things, it escapes their notice. We're going to see willingly. And then he says, but don't let this escape your notice. And that's the command. The command is to not forget, to not let it escape our understanding The bad guys do that willingly for their own gain, following their own lusts. But you, believers, don't do it. Don't let it escape your notice. So with that in mind, let's take a look at verse 5. For when they, that's the bad guys, maintain this, and what is it? Where is the promise of his coming? Forever since everything's gone the same. That's what they're saying, right? When the bad guys maintain this, it escapes 
There notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at one time was destroyed, being flooded with water. For when these bad guys maintain their falsehoods, where is the promise going? Ever since the creation has been here, the fathers have died, everything's the same. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice. Now what's interesting is I usually prefer the NASB, but here I think they have not gone far enough in their translation because there's a word that they actually don't translate here. It's the Greek word fellow, which means willfully. Willfully. Other versions actually put that in there. The New King James does. New King James says, for this they willfully forget. For when they maintain this, it willfully escapes their notice. They are doing it on purpose. They knew about creation. They knew about the flood. They knew it came about by God's word. But these apostates reject God and seek their own self-gratification, following after their own lusts. So they willfully ignore the truth of God. They willfully ignore it. Now again, the pattern is, they do it, but don't you do it. So what's Peter's point? In the beginning, notice he says here, that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So what's his point? That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. By his powerful word, God said, and it was, light be and light was. God spoke the universe into existence. And then notice, we see, not only by his powerful word does the creation exist, but verse 6, through which, and, and actually, notice he gives us a little interesting portion about creation back in verse 5, the end, that the earth was formed out of water and by water. Now, I'm not a scientist, but that's pretty interesting. The earth was formed out of water and by water. I'm not sure totally what that means, but it's pretty cool, isn't it? We get a little insight into how God spoke the creation into existence. And then in verse 6, he says, Through which, speaking of water, the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. You may or may not know the true story back in Genesis 6 we see that God was finally fed up with the wickedness of man on the earth and that every intent of his heart was completely evil and that he was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart and said he would blot out man. Yet Noah found favor or grace, Genesis 6. So God was patient and commanded Noah to build an ark and over 120 years he did so obediently And then the flood judgment came upon the earth, and everyone other than Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives perished in the flood waters. But these eight persons were saved. You see, God hates sin, and he will judge sin, and he has demonstrated that already. Indeed, mankind, Luke 17, 27, was eating and drinking and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and then the flood came and destroyed them all, Jesus says. Luke 17:27. We know back in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, we have the statement in verse 5 that he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So God brought about his creation by his word at one time, and he also brought by his word a worldwide flood judgment. And these mockers willfully ignore that truth. They willfully ignore that the world was created by the word of God and that it was flooded in the past by the same, by the word of God. God declared and he brought forth what he said he would do. Where my first love died 
now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.